The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from Ruth 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The names of one was Orpah, and the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Milan and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-laws, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear two sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said to them, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death departs me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty again. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Kind of have to bend your knees halfway through, you know, make sure. I'll pass out. Uh, it's good to be with you this evening. If we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I get the privilege of serving as pastor here uh, at Citizens. Uh, if you do have a Bible, go ahead and get to Ruth chapter one. Uh, it's not going to be on the screen uh, tonight, so you're going to want a Bible or a phone, or it should be in your bulletin as well. We just have a ton of text, and so we're going to just work through this chapter together. It's going to be a ton of fun. Uh, real quick, before we kind of hop into the sermon and the series, we have some extra resources for you if you want to uh, kind of take another step uh, with us in this journey. 
journey into the book of Ruth over the next month. Uh, two of those resources are in your bulletin or in some of the bulletins. Not everybody got one. We had a printer error. Uh, they're also online, but we have a kind of background to the book of Ruth as well as a, a handout on how to read Old Testament narrative. How do we think about these Old Testament passages? So I'm going to go long tonight, and if I get boring, you can just read those instead of listening. That's fine. It's a joke. Uh, Let me pray for us, and then we'll get into Ruth chapter one together. God, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you that we, uh, by the power of your spirit, can declare like we just sang, God, to you our hearts are open. And your word is powerful, and your spirit is powerful. God, you convict, you sharpen, you change, you comfort. God, so I pray you do all of those things based on what it is that we need from you tonight. We love you. We need you. Probably sings in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. Here's where I want to start us. Think about your favorite book or movie. Take a second. Think about it. Your favorite book or movie. Maybe uh, a favorite book or movie. Maybe a, a book or movie that you have seen recently. Think about the plot. Think about uh, how it intros, how it starts. Think about the, the uh, conflict that happens, the crisis that happens. Think about the resolution. Is it a happy ending? Is it a drama? Is it a, a sad ending? How, think about all the things that progress in your favorite book or movie. Or think about the characters. Think about the, the protagonist, the antagonist. Who's the, the enemy? Are you, are you rooting for the main character or against the main character? Think about that best friend who's hilarious and provides a lot of comedic relief, but has nothing to do with the plot at all. Think about your favorite story. Here's where I want to start us tonight. Stories have the power to move us. Stories have the power, a good story has the power to affect us like bullet points or facts cannot. Let me prove it to you. If I were to stand up here and tell you some facts about The Lion King, right? Everybody seen The Lion King? Please say yes. Thank you. If I told you some facts about the Lion King, here's some facts, right? The Lion King, the movie, takes place largely in this area called the Pride Lands. And the, the king of the Pride Lands is a lion, right, named something. I knew this a minute ago. Named Mufasa. I've not watched this movie recently. And Mufasa, I do know this, has a younger brother named Scar, right? And Scar is jealous of the kingdom of Mufasa. And so he has a plan to take over the throne. And so that plan involves luring Mufasa's son Simba into a gorge. And he starts a stampede. And during this stampede, trying to save his son, Scar gets to kill Mufasa. Now that's some facts that I got half correct about the movie The Lion King. But it doesn't move you like actually sitting down and turning on the movie and seeing that clip where you're in the middle of the gorge and Mufasa is laying dead and Simba, who's just a little lion cub at that point, walks up to him and he kind of nudges his head against his side and he says, wake up, wake up, wake up. That's the tear jerking kind of stuff. Thanks, Disney. Right? Stories have the power to move us and affect us like bullet points and facts cannot. And what we get the opportunity to do tonight and over the course of the next four weeks is to dive deep into a powerful story. We're going to look over the next four weeks at the four chapters of the story of Ruth. What one commentator said was the most beautiful piece of literature ever written. And many times in our culture and in the church today, we cheapen the story of Ruth to make it about a lot of things it's not actually about. So we say or teach that Ruth is about dating, 
or Ruth is about romance, or Ruth is about marriage. We use it in sermons about dating. We use it in classes about dating. We quote it to each other at marriage ceremonies. We encourage single folks, hey, wait for your Boaz. When in reality, Ruth has very little to do with romance and a whole lot to do with God. The main story, the main emphasis of the story of Ruth actually has very little to do with marriage or dating or waiting for your Boaz and has a lot to do with the faithfulness of God to his people. So over the next four weeks, we're going to work through this story together and we're going to ask one question of ourselves in a bunch of different ways over the next month. And that is this question, will we trust God? Will we trust God? Will we entrust all of our lives, all of our being to a God who is faithful to his people? God who moves in mysterious ways, who who works wonders, who knows all things, who holds all things together. And we're going to ask this question in a bunch of different ways, but specifically tonight, I want to ask this version of the question. Will we trust God when we suffer? Will we trust God when we suffer. Ruth chapter one, I want to take us into the story. Hopefully you have it in front of you in some way, shape, or form. If not, you're probably going to be lost. Uh, Ruth chapter one, it's going to be a ton of fun. Here's what I want to do. I want to work through the story together. I want to kind of show us what is happening in this chapter. And then at the very end, I'm going to circle back and apply it into our lives. All right, so stay with me. I promise the payoff is going to be worth it in some amount of time in the future. No promises. Ruth chapter one. Verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. All right, pause right there. So the time, the context of this book is the time of the judges. So if you're not familiar, about 1,400 years before Jesus shows up on the scene, Israel is ruled by a group of people called the judges. And during the time of the judges, there was a cycle that the people of God lived out. And that cycle looked like this. The people of God had commands from God. They had an entire law, an entire way of living. They would rebel against God. God, in response, would send discipline or punishment against his people. He would follow that discipline up by sending a judge to say, hey, you're getting this discipline because you rebelled against God. You should repent and turn. And so the people largely would repent and return to God for a little while. Then they would rebel again. So here in the story, it says we're in the time of Judges. A a really good summary of Judges is actually found in the verse right before Ruth 1.1. This is Judges 21.25. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king. Everyone was doing what they wanted to do. And so as you read this, if you were an ancient Jewish listener, you were listening to the story of Ruth, you would have heard that first line where it says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And you would have known this famine is not a coincidence. This famine is not just some weather pattern that happened to where there's no crops anymore. You would know, okay, we're in the time of judges, a time of rebellion against God. And so this famine is not random. It's an act of discipline by God against his people. They've rebelled against him. And so God has actually forced discipline against his people such that they would repent and they would turn back to him. So you would have known that. Let's keep reading. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. So we get introduced to this man named Elimelech. 
And Elimelech, in response to the famine, takes his family away to the foreign country of Moab. Now, on the surface, this is not a big deal, right? On the surface, it's like, all right, he's got to provide for his family. It's not a big deal. He's got to take care. He's got to go to where there's some food. But in reality, the deeper story is that this is actually sin on behalf of Elimelech. Let me show you why. He, for three reasons. Number one, he was a Jew. And so he would have known that this famine was not random. Elimelech would have known, hey, God is sending this famine in response to our sin. And so the response is not to flee from Bethlehem and go to another place. The response is actually that we should repent. We should turn back to God. He would have known Deuteronomy 30, which says, if you return to the Lord, I will provide fruit from the ground for my people. That's the first reason why it's not okay that Elimelech goes to Moab. The second reason is that they leave Bethlehem. Bethlehem was this town in the land of Canaan. And if you remember the story of Exodus, God brought his people out of Egypt, out of slavery to Pharaoh, but he didn't just bring them away from Egypt. He brought them to Canaan, to the promised land. This was where God's people were supposed to dwell. This is where his people were supposed to live. The third reason why this is not okay is that he goes to Moab. And Moab does not have a good history with God's people, the Israelites. They're constant antagonizers of the Israelites. They attack the Israelites. When the Israelites were fleeing Egypt, as they were walking through the wilderness, the first nation to attack them and try to take advantage of them was Moab. So he leaves, he doesn't repent, he turns away from God, he leaves the promised land and he goes to the land of compromise. So here's here's what's going on here. Elimelech's response to his suffering is sin. Catch that, all right? Elimelech's response to his very real suffering, my family can't eat, is to compromise. He leaves the land of promise. He doesn't turn back to God. Rather, Elimelech, whose name means God is king, becomes his own king and goes to the land of compromise. He sins. He rebels against God. That's his response to suffering. Not to turn to the Lord, but to turn away from the Lord and to compromise. Let's keep going in the story. Pick it up. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So notice that a little trip to Moab becomes a settling in the land. Verse three, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Malon and Chilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So Elimelech passes away. We're not told why, but then the narrative of Ruth shifts and it now focuses on Naomi. For the rest of the story, a lot of the focus is actually going to be on Naomi. I know the book is called Ruth, but it's actually a lot of more, it's actually kind of 50-50 about Naomi and about Ruth. And already in 10 years and in six and five verses, Naomi has suffered greatly. Already in these five verses, we see that Naomi has lost her husband And now, okay, she goes, okay, at least I have my sons, right? They can take care of me. They can support me. This would have been kind of her life insurance system in this culture, but now they have passed away as well. And on top of that, it says that they were married to these two Moabite women for 10 years. And so in that culture, after 10 years, they probably should have had and would have had some kids, but they're barren. So Naomi is suffering on every way, shape, and form. Her husband has died. Her two sons have died. She has no grandchildren. She's left without hope, without a future, without anyone to take care of her. All she has is these two anti-God Moabite daughters-in-law. And then it shows us verse six. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. 
For she had heard in the fields of Moab, the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So we have the first kind of glimpse of God's kindness to his people. We'll come back to that in a second. Verse seven. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. So here in these verses, Naomi hears, okay, God is restoring a harvest to Bethlehem. She's like, I'm going to go back. But then her daughters-in-law are like, we'll go with you. She's like, no, 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 stay. Stay in Moab. Don't come with me. It's better for you to stay in your homeland. There's men there that you can marry. You can still build a life. I'm releasing you of your commitment to me. Just stay in Moab. Do not come with me. And you start seeing the deep sadness in Naomi's heart. You start seeing her inability to receive anything from the Lord. She says, no, don't come with me. Verse 10. They said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. They're like, no, we're coming with. We're going to go with. Don't worry about us. We got this. We're coming with you. Verse 11. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? All right, so this is what's going on with Naomi. Her suffering has become bitterness in her heart. Her suffering has caused her to be unable to see the kindness and goodness of God. And you can kind of see it in this sort of destitute, what kind of reads a sarcasm almost. It's not a joking sarcasm, but just a deep sadness. So she says, hey, there's no hope for you two in Bethlehem. What's the best case scenario? I'm going to get married tonight, and then I'm going to get pregnant. I'm going to have some kids. I'm going to have some sons, and then you're going to wait for them to grow up and marry them. Like it's this deep kind of there's no path in which Naomi thinks it's going to go well. There's no future in which God shows up for Naomi and provides for her. There's no future. And we see this so clearly. The next verse is so shocking. The next part of verse 13, she says, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. If you the type of person to write in your Bible, underline that phrase. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. That's a shocking phrase for an Israelite person to say in the Old Testament. Nowhere else in the Old Testament is that phrase used for a person who's a part of the people of God. Throughout the Old Testament, that phrase, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me, was reserved solely for enemies of God. That phrase throughout. So if you uh, were Pharaoh who was oppressing God's people under slavery in Egypt, if you were an enemy nation attacking God's people, that was when the hand of the Lord went out against you. It never is declared any time except for Ruth chapter one about a person who belongs to the people of God. But here, Naomi's suffering and her bitterness is so tangible. She says, God has treated me like an enemy. God has treated me not as a part of his people, not as included in as his enemy. Let me ask you real quick before we continue in the story. Have you ever thought that about God? Like you ever stopped and gone, this can't be. The way that God is dealing with me does not make sense if I'm truly a child of his. She says he's dealt with me bitterly. His hand has gone out against me. He's treated me not like a part of his people, but as his enemy. Her bitterness is so deep, it's so entrenched, rightfully so, right? She's gone through some very real suffering, some very real pain. It makes sense. It's not right, but it makes sense. Verse 14, 
Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. We're going to talk about the or- uh, Orpah on the Midweek Podcast this week. I didn't make it into the sermon, but it's good, so listen to it. Verse 15, and she said to Ruth, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, everyone's favorite passage in Ruth, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. We love these verses, right? We buy them from Hobby Lobby. We frame them, put them on our wall. We say them to each other at wedding ceremonies. No offense if you did that. It's a beautiful promise, right? It's a beautiful promise from Ruth to Naomi. But look at Naomi's response, verse 18. Look at her bitterness. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. The literal translation of that is she stopped talking to her. I think next wedding that I'm going to do, I'm going to have one member of the couple, the groom's going to like promise this to the bride. And then the goal is that the bride can't say anything to the groom the rest of the wedding. It's going to be the goal. That's what happens. It's a literal application of Ruth 1. Look at her bitterness, right? Ruth literally just said, hey, I'm yours forever. I'm going to die with you. They're going to bury me next to you. And Naomi's like, and she just turns around and keeps walking. (laughs) Her suffering has made her so bitter against the Lord. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. The literal translation is the Lord has brought me back with nothing and no one. Which if you're Ruth standing right next to her, you're like. But listen, that, that's how bitter Naomi is, right? That's how much her suffering has affected her. She says, look, the Lord's hand has gone out against me. He's treated me like my enemy so much so that when I come back, I'm going to say, no, call me Mara, which means bitter because I've returned with nothing and no one. Notice she cannot see the kindness of God in the gift of Ruth. She can't see it, right? Her daughter-in-law, who actually has no legal obligation and no religious or spiritual obligation to commit her life to Naomi, has said, I'm yours, Your God is my God. Your people are my people. Your land is my land. I'm going with you. And Naomi is so entrenched in her bitterness that she misses the hand of the Lord. Now, here's what this knot is. This is not a count your blessings type of deal, okay? The the, the response as we read this should not be, hey, Naomi, just count your blessings. Hey, Naomi, like, I know, like, God's been, like, he's doing some stuff, and I know, like, you lost your husband, and I know you lost your sons, but, like, you got Ruth. Like, look on the bright side of life. That's not what we're talking about here. But what's happening with Naomi is that she is so deeply in her bitterness against God that she has turned away from him and says, no, nothing God does can be good. Nothing he does can be kind to me. Nothing he does can be providing for me. There's no way in which this is going to go well. I've resigned myself to a life of suffering for as many days as I have in Bethlehem. This is how she ends uh, verse 21. She says, why call me Naomi? Why call me pleasant when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Elimelech's response to his suffering is compromise. It's sin, right? I'm going to turn away from the land of promise. I'm going to go to the land of compromise. Naomi's response to her suffering is bitterness. 
I'm going to ignore the hand of the Lord. I'm going to miss the greater narrative that he's writing. I'm going to miss the greater story that he's doing. I'm going to miss the fact that he is working. A harvest is returning to Bethlehem. He has given me the gift of Ruth, who is next chapter is going to provide for me in some crazy ways. I'm going to miss all of that because I'm so focused on my very real and very painful suffering. And so she turns bitter. All right, let me try to get this into our lives before we keep going. Here's what I want us to see. We all, in this room, every single one of us, have gone, are going, and will go through suffering. Every single one of us. We have gone, we are going, and we will go through suffering. Now, some of us, to a lesser degree than Elimelech's family, some of us, to a greater degree than Elimelech's family. I don't think it matters in terms of reading Ruth chapter 1, because suffering is suffering. And some of that suffering will be punishment from God, will be a part of his discipline for our very real sin and rebellion against him. And some of that suffering will be because we are broken people living in a broken world this side of eternity. But all of us have gone, are going, and will go through suffering. And when we do, in our sin and in our flesh, we are going to be pulled to respond like Elimelech and Naomi. Let me show you this. Like Elimelech, we are going to be tempted in our suffering to not trust God, but to choose the path of compromise and sin. Just like Elimelech, when we are pressed by the very real, tangible weight of pain and suffering, instead of running to the Lord and throwing ourselves on him and trusting in his kindness, we are going to try to go at ourselves. We are going to try to pull us up by our bootstraps. We're going to try to go against whatever we think is going to alleviate the pain that's not God. Whatever's going to alleviate our suffering, what's ever going to get us through the trial, we're going to be pressed so hard and we're going to begin to believe the lie that an alleviation of that suffering is going to be found in everywhere that is not Jesus. For some of us, this is going to be some small ways. We're going to justify it. We're going to say things like, yeah, I know I shouldn't drink that much, but like it's just been a really hard week. Or maybe, yeah, I know I shouldn't lash out at my spouse or my kids or my roommate, but like I'm just under a lot of pressure at work. Yeah, like I know I shouldn't isolate and pull back from community, but like I'm just really going through some tough times with my depression and anxiety. We're going to use our very real suffering as an excuse to justify us living outside of the rule of God. If I can be honest for a second, I know it's church. If I can be honest, I'm in the middle of this fight right now. Like me personally, your pastor is in the middle of this. The last couple of months have been brutal. They've been hard for a number of different reasons. There's been hurt, hurt that I've caused, hurt that's been done to me. There's been suffering and pain that I can't control and some that I can control. And in all of it, this real pressure that I've been facing right now is just to go, is there anything that's going to give me an alleviation from this pain and suffering and except for Jesus? So I'm pressed. Am I going to find some relief in food? Am I going to find some relief in alcohol? Am I going to find some relief in binge watching that show? Am I going to find some relief in anything that I can do to escape? And then other times, if I'm like, well, I shouldn't escape. I can't do that. Then I just double down, right? I say, I'm not going to escape. Instead, I'm just going to grab life by the horns. I'm going to take control of my own destiny. I'm going to push and I'm going to manipulate and I'm going to coerce. and I'm going to do whatever I can to just force the situation to get better for me. I feel this very real tension and weight, and I'm recognizing more and more, one, the lie, that I'm so pulled to believe all of the time that there is hope and life and reprieve from suffering and anything that's not Jesus. 
and then also my own ability to believe my own hype about my spiritual maturity. My own ability to go, no, surely I'm farther along than this, right, God? Like, surely when times are going good, I start to believe my own stuff, right? Like, when I'm good, when my life is okay, when things are going all right, when I'm not in a season of suffering, when I'm prospering, which we're going to talk about next week, it's really easy for me to think that I'm good at following Jesus. And then I get pressed, and I get I walk through suffering, and I experience trial, and I experience pain, and I experience heartache, and I experience relational tension. And my first response is, oh, there's a lot of idols and sin still in my heart that the Lord's still working on. There's a lot of things I want to run to that are not God to give me some reprieve. And a lot of us do that. A lot of us are like Elimelech. We're faced with very real suffering, this side of eternity, this side of spending eternity with Jesus. And so we say, hey, the the way to get out of this is to chase every compromise under the sun. For others of us, we're much more like Naomi. We turn to bitterness in our suffering, which just for the record is also sin. Just for the record, when she turns her back on the Lord and says, no, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. He is not good. He is not kind. That is just as much rebellion against the kindness of the Lord as it is for Elimelech to go to Moab. Because what happens in our suffering is we tell two narratives about God. We learn to believe or try to, or attempted to believe these two narratives. One, that God is good, but he's not powerful. Or two, that God is powerful, but he's not good. And for Naomi, she believed the second one. She said, no, no, God is powerful, right? The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. This is the Lord. This is what he's doing, but he's just not good to me. She can't see the kindness of God. What happens in our suffering is we become so focused on our suffering that we miss God. We miss the grander story. We miss verse six, that that a harvest is returning to the fields of Bethlehem. We miss verses 14 through 17, Ruth pledging her life to Naomi. We miss any amount of kindness of God right in front of us because we become so focused on our suffering. Here's an easy way to know if this is you, an easy way to know if you are entrenched in your bitterness in the midst of your suffering is this. How do you respond to the truths of God? How do you respond to the truths of God? When you're sitting down in the morning or at night and you're reading God's word and the spirit is moving and he's stirring something in you, what is your response? Are you soft to the things of God? Are you, yes, Lord, this encouragement is for me, this conviction is for me, this promise is for me, or you're like, "Ah, I don't don't want it. When you're a community group, you share about sin and struggle and trial and suffering that you are going through, and members in your group rightfully want to encourage you in the good news of the Lord, how's your heart? Ah, yeah, I know what you're saying is good, but like, that's not good for me right now. Like, I know what you're saying is good, but like, it's just not helpful. Like, don't, I don't need that Jesus stuff. I don't need that, yeah, yeah, gospel. I got it. How do you respond? Signs of bitterness. The invitation for us as a church is to be able to grieve and suffer well. Not to have false pretenses that everything has to be awesome. Not to be like, hey, guys, just look on the bright side of life. We got Ruth and we got a harvest. That's not the goal. The goal is to be able to suffer well, to be able to say, no, this, we mourn what is broken, and yet we still have hope. That's what it means to suffer well as the people of God, to not run towards compromise, to not run towards bitterness. And that's what we see with Ruth. There's a, there's a third option shown us in this passage, and that's Ruth. We uh, read it, we made fun of it, but let's look at it again. Ruth 1, 14 through 17. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people. And there's this, and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. 
But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. The Hebrew structure of this promise from Ruth to Naomi is actually quite shocking. It actually reads much more simply and directly in the Hebrew. She basically says, your land, my land, your people, my people, your God, my God, your burial place, my burial place. What's happening here is that Ruth is committing everything about her life to Naomi. She's giving up her geography and homeland. She's committing, I'm going to Bethlehem. I'm giving up Moab. I'm coming with you. She's giving up her future. It's easier for her to go back with Orpah and to marry someone else in Moab, but she's committing her future to death, to be buried in the same place, Naomi. She's committing her family ties. She says, no, your people are now my people. I'm taking off my Moabite identity. I'm taking on the identity of Jew. And then finally, her religion, right? She says, your God is my God. I'm not going to worship these false gods. I'm not turning back to these false idols. I'm following Yahweh. And really the best way to describe this scene is an Old Testament conversion experience. So a lot of other folks in the Old Testament that were non-Jewish, they would praise Yahweh or they would celebrate Yahweh or they would speak highly of Yahweh. But here, Ruth completely abandons her old identity and religion and way of living to follow God and to commit herself to God and his people. That's the power of Ruth's statement in these verses. Her declaration in 16 and 17, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. I'm committing to you is not primarily about her commitment to Naomi. It's primarily about her commitment to God. She is saying to Naomi, I belong to you because I belong to God. I trust God. I know we have suffered much. I know that we have lost much. And I know the future doesn't really look great for me in Bethlehem. And I know I'll be rejected as a foreigner. I'll be ostracized as a widow. I'll be cast aside and cast out. But Naomi, your God is now my God. I'm not going anywhere. I'm all in on Yahweh. I'm here for this. I'm trusting that God is faithful in our suffering. I'm not choosing sin. I'm not choosing compromise. I'm not choosing bitterness. I'm choosing trust. The invitation for us as the reader is to see Ruth and consider, church, will this be true of us as well? Will we, in the midst of our suffering, be like Ruth and trust God's hand to not give in to sin, to being our own king, to bitterness towards God? Will we remember that for all of us who are in Christ, like Ruth, have put off our old identity? We've put off our old way of being. We've put off our old peopleness. We've put off our own groups, and we've declared God is our God. I'm all in on God, and I'm all in on his people. And so we declare with Ruth, God will be faithful and uncertainty and doubt, God will be faithful. When sin seems so much easier in the midst of suffering, God will be faithful. When it doesn't make sense, God will be faithful. When our suffering is tangible and it's like on the tip of our fingers and we can just feel it in an overwhelming sense, God will be faithful. When others abandon and go back home like Orpah, God will be faithful. He's faithful to his people. And church, we can say this because there's a fourth character in Ruth chapter one. There's a fourth character at play. Not just Orpah, we'll talk about her later. There's a fourth character, not Elimelech, not Naomi, not Ruth, God. It's God. The shocking part about this book, as you'll see over the next month, is that God is often working behind the scenes and doing much. And the narrator's trying to clue us in to what God is doing, even in the midst of all of it. Look at verse 22, how this chapter ends. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem. Notice what? At the beginning of barley 
harvest. Chapter one starts with a famine, brokenness, sin, suffering, and it ends with a harvest. It ends with a glimmer of hope. Naomi and Ruth back with God's people, back in the promised land at the beginning of a harvest, which tells us as the reader, God is still working. The story's not over. It doesn't end with Naomi walking back to Bethlehem going, hey, call me Mara, I'm bitter, that's the end. End scene, cut, curtain closed. It doesn't end with that. There's so much more goodness to come in the book. And this chapter ends with a little glimmer of that. Hey, look, Naomi's not alone. She's got Ruth and she's back with God's people. And guess what? The famine is over. God is still working. And in all of this, in the sin of Elimelech, in the bitterness of Naomi, in the confidence and trust of Ruth, we see the first glimpses of what will be true in the story of Ruth and more importantly, in the story of history. God is faithful to his people, Period. God is faithful to his people. He does not abandon them. He has not forgotten them. He has not, and he will not turn his back on them. He is still good. He is still working, and he is still moving. Here's how John Piper talks about Ruth. He says, taken as a whole, the story of Ruth is one of those signs. It was written to give us encouragement and hope that all the perplexing turns in our lives are going somewhere good. They do not lead off a cliff. In all the setbacks of our lives as believers, God is plotting for our joy. Not our comfort, not our happiness, but our joy. There's a deeper grace at work amidst the sin and suffering and sacrifices of the people of God. God is doing something in our midst. He's working something out in our midst. And so as we consider Ruth chapter one, we are meant to not only see God's faithfulness to these people, but also meant to see past his faithfulness to them to an even larger story of grace that he's writing in our lives and in the world. The story of Ruth points us forward to a larger story of God's redemptive plan, which involves our sin and our suffering, but more importantly, the suffering and sacrifice of a savior. And the greatest answer, will we and can we trust God in our lives, in our hearts, with all of our being is not just found in this beautiful story of Ruth, but it's found in the story of the cross. That's the answer. Will we trust God? But not only will we trust God, can we trust God is answered not only in Ruth one through four, but in Jesus that we can trust him in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our uncertainties, in the midst of our confusion and pain. We have the invitation over the next month when we ask the question, will we and can we trust God? The answer is this, yes, look at the life of Ruth and Naomi, but yes, even more so, look past Ruth and Naomi to Jesus. Spoiler alert, at the end of chapter four of Ruth, Naomi's gonna get married, or Ruth's gonna get married and she's gonna have a kid. And through that line is going to come King Jesus. God is already preparing a way. He is already doing something in the midst of suffering. The story does not end in Moab with death. It turns to Bethlehem and the offer of life and the offer of harvest. And so we can look like Ruth, we can look at God, we can look at our Savior and we can say, you know what, I don't have to in my suffering be my own God, be my own king, run to sin, I can look at Jesus. We don't have to, in the midst of our suffering, give in to bitterness towards God, turn away from him. We can look at the suffering of Jesus on our behalf, and we can remember we are not alone. Christ has promised to be near to the brokenhearted, to the suffering, and to the downtrodden. So the invitation all four weeks as we look at the book of Ruth is to say with Ruth, God is our God. He's our God, and he will be faithful to his people. We pray for us. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the story of Ruth. 
And we thank you for Ruth and Naomi and story that you write in the eighth, eighth book of the Bible. In this little four chapter, kind of easily pass overable type of book, where it just seems like on the surface it's a story about some people that lived a long time ago, even before Jesus. Why does this matter? And yet, in the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, God, we see your hand of faithfulness. We see your kindness to your people. God, we see that you don't end the story in Moab with suffering and death, but you move them back to Bethlehem at the beginning of a harvest. You're still writing the story. You're still doing something, God. And we know because of the goodness of the gospel that that is true for us. And we know that might not come this side of eternity. We know know that for some of us, the harvest is going to be an eternity with you. And we don't know what you're doing, God, we can't see it. It's easy to read Ruth and be like, oh yeah, look at what you did, this, this, and this, God. And it's so much more cloudy in the day-to-day lived experience of our lives, Lord. And so we pray that you will help us by your spirit trust you. And we want to trust you. We need to trust you. God, so as we consider this week the question, will we trust you in our suffering? God, I pray by the power of your spirit, through the conviction of your word, that we will learn more and more to say yes. We'll learn more and more to say, I'm not going to go after sin. I'm not going to go after compromise. I'm not going to go after bitterness. Lord, I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to trust your hand. I'm going to trust your kindness. I'm going to trust your goodness, that you walk with me in the midst of it all. That you walk with me in the midst of suffering. You walk with me in the midst of pain. God, that you are still good. You're still doing something. You're still accomplishing something for your glory and our good. Even if we don't like it, even if it's hard, even if it's painful, God, we want to be a people that trust you. We need your help desperately, Lord. Send your spirit. Probably since in Jesus' name, amen.